We're going to turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 16, let me just uh, reiterate what was already announced. Tonight is the all-church rally. Now listen, whether you've been around Harvest from the very beginning or whether this is your first or second time here, the all-church rally is for you. That's why we've strategically titled it an all-church rally. Uh, I want you here. Even if you're not in a small group, you're not really working for Christ, you're kind of newer, hey, come tonight. We have things that are for you. Uh, And uh, in addition to the laser tag, which will be fun for the kids and the pizza and whatever, we also have uh, one of those wedding-style photo booths set up. You ever seen those? With all sorts of, like, space props and stuff. And the the, uh, pastors uh, earlier this week tried out some of this photo booth material. So here's a picture of us just getting ready (laughs) for the photo booth tonight. So you'll be able to take some pictures with your friends and your family. Uh, But be here at 5 for the food and some of the fun. And then uh, we'll we'll go on from there. It's going to go until 8.30. Be here tonight. Okay. In case you haven't heard the new theme, this year our uh, theme is called To Boldly Go. Straight out of the Great Commission where Jesus says, Go and make disciples. We are going to do that for the next year. Focus on that. Um, And the teachings are going to come straight out of that, where Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We're going to spend a year in the teachings of Jesus. But to boldly go, obviously, has a space connotation. And um, I've announced it before, but you need to know that your pastor is a Star Trek fan. Any other Star Trek fans in the room this morning? Star Trek? Okay, good, yeah. Favorite Star Trek captain? Uh, Jean-Luc Picard. No, Jean-Luc Picard. Uh By far. The best Star Trek captain that there is. Now, but I'm not really like an all-out Trekkie. Okay, I've never been to the conventions. Um, And there are some people who get really carried away in their Star Trek affiliation. In fact, I read that there were some pretty nerdy folk who sat down with a calculator and decided to calculate how much it would cost to actually build the USS Enterprise. I mean, they actually added it up. And uh, we got a picture here of the Enterprise and the schematics and... Um, little blueprint there. And the way they did it was this. They started by saying, well, what raw materials would we need? They said, well, (laughs) the Enterprise is about half a mile long. It's about 600 feet tall. And the saucer alone has a diameter of 1,000 feet. They said, like, one of our biggest aircraft carriers is, is about half of the Enterprise. So let's say Here's a picture of one of the biggest aircraft carriers we have. Let's say we'll need the rough, raw materials of two of those. Two of those to build the Enterprise. And they said, based on that calculation, we'd need raw materials of about uh, 400, well, no, it would be about $12.4 billion just for the nuts and bolts and the sheet metal. Then to put it all together, they estimated it would be about $456 billion in assembly time, and you've got to get it up to space, which costs money. If they wanted to get like some higher-end technology like replicators, well, we don't have replicators like them. Some of the things that we have that parallel would cost about $7 million to get those things on board for a long journey into space. Now, if you're going into space, you need weapons, right? We don't have photon torpedoes, but we've got like tactical nukes. So if we wanted to put about 38 tactical nukes on this thing, that'd be about $6 billion. And then you add, we, you know, we don't have really lasers like Star Trek. But we've got some d- developmental uh, things that would cost about $171 million. Personnel and supply added in. It comes to a grand total of $480 billion to build the Enterprise. And it can't even fly yet. 
because they don't know what it would cost to design and install warp technology. <laughs> so the Trekkies gave up and said, well, we got to $480 billion as the cost, and then we just stopped because <laughs> that's as far as we could get. When it comes to the cost, it's the question you'll ask when you make any purchase, whether you're trying to get a new phone or a pair of shoes or a car or whatever. Well, what does it cost? What does it cost? Uh, how much is this going to cost me? And that is a question that Jesus wants to ask for each one of his followers, a question he wants to answer. If I follow you, Jesus, how much will it cost me? What will I have to sacrifice? What's the price tag of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a question Jesus wanted to answer. Because he had people following him who were all in, but he had some people following him who were half in. And he wanted to basically chase those people away by telling them how much it would cost. When we started this series, we took a few weeks and talked about the gospel according to Jesus. Now we're going to take a few weeks and talk about the cost of discipleship according to Jesus. And based on what you're going to hear, I'm just going to let you know in advance, these are going to be strong, troubling, hard messages. I'd like to call the next several sermons for the next several weeks crowd reduction sermons. Because there are going to be some of you who aren't all in on Jesus, and Jesus is going to call you out on it. And when you hear what he's really demanding of you, you're not going to follow him anymore. But in Jesus' mind, that's a good thing. Because you weren't really following him to begin with. But there are going to be some of you who are going to go all in in your discipleship. In Matthew 16 the Lord begins to address this very important issue. So let's look there. Matthew 16, verse 24. Uh, to give you some context here, what's going on is this. Jesus began to say crazy things to his disciples. All right, I mean, things that made their eyebrows go up real far. He started saying things like, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and crucified. You can't imagine a Jesus without a cross, because ever since you were a wee little baby, they taught you Jesus died on the cross, and you've seen pictures of it, and it's not so for the early disciples. What they thought was going to happen is, they thought Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem, overthrow the Roman overlords, and, and sit on a throne and rule the whole world. And they thought they were going to come in and be his cabinet. I want to sit at your right hand. I want to sit at your left hand and rule the world with you. And then he starts talking about dying. After he said this, Peter took him and said, Come here, come here, come here, Jesus, come here. You remember what he said to him? This shall never happen to you. And do you remember what Jesus said in response? Get thee behind me, Satan. Why? Because it was Satan's plan to give Jesus all authority in the world without having to go to the cross. That's what Satan offered him in the 40 days in the wilderness. Just bow right here and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And so he said to his disciples, no. He called them all around. Everybody come around, come around, come around. I'm going to die. I'm going to be on a cross. Oh, and by the way, he says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. By the way, I'm going to be on a cross. Oh, and so are you. Now, I have a feeling when Jesus said this, some of his followers were like, so you're not going to rule the world? 
and we're not going to be your cabinet in this new kingdom with power and glory and riches and oh i didn't really sign up for did you sign up for this i didn't sign up for this to hear that jesus would die on a cross would be the equivalent today of execution well how do we execute people well we execute people by either lethal injection or the electric chair the equivalent of jesus saying they're they're going to fry me Here's a picture of the electric chair. It would be the same as if Jesus said, I don't, you guys just need to understand that I'm, uh, I'm going to end up there. And they're going to pull the switch. Uh, another picture here. And, and he's like, by the way, um, you want to know what it's going to be like to follow me in this life? Take a seat. Take a seat. If I had to describe it for you, I would probably say it's going to feel like you're living on death row. That's what he's saying. Or maybe, maybe you could take this one, a noose, instead of an electric chair. You know, I'm going to go up there to the top, and uh, they're going to put me in the noose and kick out the floor from underneath me, but there's one up there for you. So come on up, lean in, get it around your neck. Um, that's kind of what it's going to be like to follow me. Here we go. This is the cost of discipleship. He wanted to be very clear with his followers what it would cost them. But what does this mean? What what exactly does it mean? And what is he demanding of each one of his disciples? Well, there's three things first that we read here. Here's the first one you can write down. First, I must deny myself. If I'm going to be a follower of Christ, write this down in your bulletin, I must deny myself. By default, I indulge myself. Naturally, I prioritize myself. On my own, I protect myself. And without anyone telling me to do so, I like to own myself. I rule myself. That's what comes naturally. But I have to deny myself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Specifically, two words that I would say that let you know if you have denied yourself. Here's the first one. Write this down. I'm dethroned. I'm dethroned. I no longer give myself the power to be the rightful ruler of my own life. I have taken off my crown of me, and I have cast it at the feet of the King of Kings, and he is now the rightful ruler in authority and power over me. He's the only branch of government. It's a monarchy, and I'm his servant. Hey, are you dethroned? Or are you still trying to be the rightful ruler of your life and you give Jesus like just one seat in the parliament and every now and then he gets to make a little suggestion of how you could reform things? Are you dethroned? Do you have a king? Have you denied yourself? Here's a throne room scene. This comes from Thor. And there's the king. I think that's Odin's throne. And look at how beautiful it is. Golden and all the strong men there and and those who are influential and mighty and And when your life begins, you put yourself on that throne. Everyone begins, it's my life, and and anything I want is mine. Little kids, you know, nobody has to teach them this. They just want it their way when they want it. It's just self-rule. But there comes a point in your life where you must surrender the throne to the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think practically the way this works out in your life is if you're living it according to Frank Sinatra's theme song, right? I did it. But you got to sing it. It's a song. So, I did it. Not bad. 
It's not bad. If that's your theme song, if that's the soundtrack of how you make your choices and how you pick your affiliations, and then you're not a surrendered, then you're not a dethroned person. And I must deny myself, I must dethrone myself, or I'm not truly a follower of Jesus. The second sub-word here is I'm dethroned, but also write this down, I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered. Meaning I'm willing to surrender every ambition and hope to the hands of my Lord. I'm allowing Him and I'm expecting Him to direct my steps, to control my future, and to oversee my present. I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered. I've denied myself the right to self-rule. I think when I think of the word surrender, the picture that comes to mind is in a military context, giving up the fight. Here's a, here's a picture, battle scene here of soldiers who are conquered. They're done. The war is over. I give up and I'll go where you say and do what you say and I am completely at your mercy because I am a surrendered person. Hey, are you a, have you given up the fight? Have you stopped the rebellion? Have you surrendered to God Almighty for the fight in your life? That's what it means to deny yourself. Here's another picture that I think of when I think of an unsurrendered person. It's just a clenched fist. And when God tries to break in, there's just an, there's a grip on things in your life that you refuse to allow Him to have. Uh, but instead, we should have our hands open and we should say, Father, you can bring anything into my life you want. Jesus, you can take anything and anyone out of my life that you want. You can make any demand of me at any point, at any cost. That's the surrendered person. And Jesus demands complete and total surrender and self-denial from each one of his followers. Hey, have you denied yourself the right to self-government? Have you dethroned yourself? Have you surrendered your life? Not my will, but yours be done. That's where discipleship begins, and that's the cost. Here's the second one. I must deny myself, but second, write this down, I must take up my cross. I must take up my cross. Not only does Jesus get a cross, but his followers get a cross too. And taking up your cross, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Bearing your cross doesn't mean having a trial or, a, or some sort of a painful challenge in your life. So like if you have asthma, or if you have like, you know, business deal go bad, or if you have like a spouse that you're not entirely thrilled with, it's not like, oh, that's my cross to bear. You know, that's just what I've been called to deal with. Um, that's not what it means to take up your cross. To take up your cross can mean a few things here. Let's look at Galatians 2.20. We'll put it up on the screen to help get some clarity into this. But hey, say this with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you hear that? I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. What does that mean? Jesus died over 2,000 years ago and I can't go back in time. What does it mean that I was crucified with him? It means by faith that he died on the cross, by faith in his death, 
you are given life. When God looks at his son on the cross, do you know what he sees? If you've put your faith in him, it's as if you died on the cross. It's as if your sins were paid for. It's as if you were thrown in the tomb. It's as if you were born again. When you put your faith in Christ, you are spiritually united with him. So that what happened to Jesus on the cross so long ago, in God's economy, in God's court of law, happened to you too. I don't need to pay the penalty for my sins because I was on the cross with Jesus. I don't need to be put to death as a punishment for my sins because I was in the tomb. I died with him. I don't need to worry if I'm going to have eternal life because he came back and so will I. I've been born again. Your faith in Christ happens at the cross. And if you take up your cross with him, you'll be saved. So write that down. The first thing it means to take up your cross is to be saved. To be saved. To associate yourself with Jesus' death for you. It means I'm saved. The moment of salvation means that the power and the penalty of sin is broken in your life. Are you a saved person? Have you taken up your cross for the first time? Have you died to this world? Have you united yourself with him through faith? You're a saved person if you have. You're an unsaved person if you have not. So taking up your cross first means to be saved. But second, write this down, it also means to be persecuted. It's a portrayal of the ongoing persecution. I've said it before, but when Jesus calls you to follow him, he does not say, take up your crossword puzzle and follow me. He does not promise you a life of leisure and fun and entertainment and ease. He promises you a life of suffering and rejection at the hands of the, hey, if the world persecuted me and hates me, it'll hate you too. So taking up your cross means basically you are willing to suffer rejection for your Lord. Let me talk to the high schoolers and the middle schoolers in the room in particular, but this goes for everyone. You're going to be given many opportunities in your life to speak up and tell people you're a follower of Jesus. And you're going to be made fun of. You're going to be ridiculed by teachers, by parents, by friends, just for saying that you're a follower of Christ. It's going to cost you something. And you're going to be tempted to be quiet in those moments because you know then that life will be easier. But Jesus wants you to take up your cross and to be willing to be associated with him like him, you are getting persecuted. Are you willing publicly to acknowledge that you're a Christian and a follower of Christ? If you are, you've got a cross on your back. If you're not, you have not taken up your cross yet. And listen, Jesus was kicked and spit on and punched in the face and heckled for you, humiliated for you. You should be treated that way for him. That's what it means to take up your cross. It means to be willing to be persecuted. Hey, I was not a Christian in the early years in high school. I went to Stag High School right here, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. I made fun of the Christians. Goody two-shoes. The Christians that dared to wear the nerdy Christian t-shirts to school. Oh, where'd you get that shirt? You go to church every weekend? I'm asleep Sunday morning in my jammies. You're going to church. How boring is that? You're so narrow-minded. You're so bigoted. You think you know it all. That's my voice. 
And I remember the Christians who stood up to me. I remember the Christians who told me what Jesus meant to them. I could tell you their names. And I remember the Christians who were ashamed of the gospel. I could tell you their names. And they said, oh, yeah, there was just nothing, there was just nothing else clean. You know, I was just, just as sure I just went to a camp. It was no big deal. Uh, yeah, you know, I go to church, but I mean, it's, you know, I just don't really love it. It's, I could tell you their names today. They didn't know they were talking to a future senior pastor. They didn't know that I would remember that they were a disgrace to the gospel. But I remember. And who knows who you're going to talk to. But taking up your cross means you're willing to suffer at the hands of people who will ridicule you. Why? Why? Because Jesus knew that people who were hurting him needed to be saved. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you putting a cross on your back is, I'm willing to be hurt by them so that maybe they'll see my faith and maybe they will be saved when they look to the cross. Right? Right? God wants to use your testimony to bring salvation to those who are hurting you and humiliating you. But you have to be willing to be persecuted. I must deny myself. Hey, are you dethroned? Are you surrendered? I must take up my cross. Hey, are you saved? Are you being persecuted? Here's the third one. I must follow him. I must follow him. There's a way Jesus is going that you must go. There's a way the world will take you and you must not go in that direction. You must not go in that direction. I need a couple of volunteers here, just really briefly, okay? So, uh, Jared, you're going to come up here. Come on, right down front. Kyle, you can come up here too. And then somebody, uh, Terry, you can come up here as well. Three of you, front and center. Let's give our volunteers a big round of applause. Right? You can stay. No, don't come up on the stage. Come down here. Come down here. Terry, Terry, up front here. Come on. Listen and follow directions. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Come right up here. All right, now Kyle's in the middle. Uh, Jared, Terry. Now, what I want you to do is, Jared, Terry, you're just going to walk. Just walk somewhere around the room, okay? Go ahead. Go ahead. Can, now, Kyle, you've got to make a choice. Pick one and follow him. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. He went with youth. Well, you got something against Terry? Huh? Is there something wrong? Terry, did you shower this morning? I don't, maybe there was something I didn't smell. <laughs> All right, pause here. Now, everybody look. Kyle is clearly choosing one and not the other. Kyle is clearly following one and not the other. This portrays a choice you have to make. Will I follow Jesus, follow after him, or will I follow the world in the way that the world wants to take me? You can't go both ways. It's one or it's the other. Okay, thank you guys very much. You can have a seat. They did a great job, didn't they? Man, Hollywood is calling. I must follow him. By nature, at birth, each one of us is on the trail of the world. There comes a point in your life, whether you were raised in the church or not, where you need to make a decisive turn. That's what repenting means. It means to turn away from where the world is trying to lure me toward the road Christ is trying to call me. Oh, I know. Maybe if you were brought up in the church, maybe you were very familiar with the way of Christ. You were around people who were followers of Christ. But when did you turn from the lure of the world and become yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It has to happen at some point in your life. So write this down. I must follow him. That means first I've departed. I've departed. I've turned away from a primary allegiance to the world. I heard the call and didn't listen to it. Or as I was on that trail, I came back and followed Christ. What does it mean to depart from the world? It means to stop running where they run. It means to stop loving what they love. It means to stop chasing what they chase. 
This is what it means to be a heavenly-minded person. This is what it means to be a person who has their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. I've departed. And it happens at a moment in time, but in the book of Luke in chapter 9, where there's a parallel passage here, it says it's a daily departure. So at some point in my life, I've stopped and I've turned from the world and I've started following Jesus. But each morning when you wake up, it's as if Jesus is saying, you've got to do this again. No, I'm going, I'm daily departing from the lusts of the world, from the pleasure of the world, from the promises of the world, from the program of the world, worshiping Christ, walking with Christ, working for Christ, witnessing for Christ. Today again, today again, pressing on, no turning back. I must follow him. It's a departure. But it's also, write this down, I'm also advancing. I've departed and I'm advancing. Follow me portrays a daily death. To get after the Lord. It means you follow him through every season of life. It means you follow him through pain. You follow him through loss. You follow him through prosperity. It means you follow him through confusion, through darkness, through delay. No turning back. No turning back. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Well, at that point, the disciples looked at each other and said, this is quite a high demand. The cost that he just laid out. And see, because they were struggling with this on the inside, he decided to give them some incentives. Why? Why would we do this? I thought he was going to a throne. What's with this going to the chair? What's with this going to the news? What's with this going to the cross? And we need to go to it too? Jesus then answers, why why would I do this? He answers the question, why? And here's the first reason. Write this down. Because he is the only way to eternal life. Why? Because he is the only way to eternal life. Jesus describes this, reading on in verse 25. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does that mean? Generally speaking, it means this. To seek to gain everything the world has to offer you in this life at the expense of your allegiance to Christ is not gain, but loss. And to seek to lose whatever Christ calls you to lose in this life, to give it up, to forsake it, is actually not loss, but it's gain. So to gain is to lose. To lose is to gain. He wants to clear up The mistake that whatever you could acquire and accumulate and hoard in this life without Jesus, he says, that's not gain, that's loss. Have you seen the videos floating around the internet of people who, uh, somebody plays a prank on them, they think they've won the lottery. They've got those fake lottery tickets and uh, and they think they've won. And their family is just kind of sitting there like... (laughs) Like laughing because it's a big ticket and they gave them. Check this out. I found a video of somebody, a couple people who thought they won a lot of money. Here it is. You won $10,000. I won $10,000. No! It's 
10,000 prizes may be claimed at your, at your mama's house. <laughs> oh, no. you've got ideas of how to play pranks on your loved ones this Christmas. <laughs> now, when I saw that, I thought, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. There's this lie that if you just don't see Christ, you can gain everything in this world, all of the treasure and the joy and all the, the privilege and the connections and all of it, and you got the big smile on your face because you're like, look at all I have won. And then did you see the look on that guy's face when he realized he's been duped, he's been tricked, he's been fooled, he's been lied to? Now, honestly, when I watched that video, I had to pause that just for a second. I looked at that man's face and I thought, this is the face of everyone who goes on to the next life without Christ. This is their face. You know that when they did a survey and they asked people how many people think they're actually going to hell, do you know the number they came up with? It's like point. 0.01% of people actually believe, yeah, I know, I know with the way I'm living, with how I treat, but you know what, I'm just, I just know I'm going to go off to eternity and it's not going to be heaven. What does that mean? That means that the majority of people who think that they're going to heaven are going to be shocked the moment that they realize they're not. The look on that guy's face is going to be the look on their face. They think they can go after all of it in this world and still have Jesus preparing things for them in the next world, and they are fatally, eternally wrong. Because gaining in this world at the expense of Christ means you have forfeited your soul. Now listen, that's a, it's a challenging description. To forfeit your soul means to lose it over to eternal damnation. And Jesus is trying to brace you and to warn you and to show you that if you, that's your plan, is to get it all you can in this life without Christ, there's nothing waiting for you. And he emphasizes the point by asking a question. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Another question, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Okay, Judgment Day. I'm sorry, but you gained the whole world. You didn't even... You didn't even pursue Christ or see, you know what, so you've lost it all. And so you turn and Jesus says, what are you going to reach for to try and get your soul back now? I've got a pretty sweet boat. I've got a pretty full retirement account. I've taken a few trips to Europe and Africa. I've got some awesome souvenirs. My golf game got really good. Like, can I give you any of that? No. No, the answer is there's nothing you could acquire in this world that when Judgment Day comes, can get you your soul back. You've forfeited it. Therefore, Jesus is painting the picture of a fatal, tragic wager that you make, that I could run after all of it in this life and not get Jesus, hoping that he'll give me something in the next life. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way it works. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Gaining is losing. 
everything in this world has an expiration date stamped on it. It would make life a lot easier if we could see that expiration date. The new car you just got or the new phone you just bought or the house that you have. There's just an expiration date of when it was going to go bad or stop working or break or be taken away or whatever. It would help if you had an expiration date stamped on your body and you knew exactly when you were going to go on to the next life. Because it would reveal to you that this life is temporary and it's merely a means to get you into the permanent reality that you'll spend forever in. You see, and there's no expiration date in the next life on anything. It lasts forever. The real question is, what are you storing up in this life that will be waiting for you in the next? And the truth is that if you have everything in this world but not Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have Jesus and nothing else in this world, you have everything. Gaining is losing. Losing is gaining. Whatever you give up in this life, whatever you release, whatever you surrender, whatever you forsake will get you far more in the next life than you could ask or imagine. Eternal life, it only comes when you find Jesus. Why? Why should I follow him? Well, he's the only way to eternal life. Second, write this down, because he's returning as the glorious judge of all. He's returning as the glorious judge of all. Jesus isn't just speaking secondhand of what will happen in the judgment as some forfeit their soul. He puts himself in front of, face to face with, everyone in his audience at that moment. He says here, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then will repay each person according to what he has done. The Son of Man is going to come. He's drawing from imagery that comes up in Daniel chapter 7 where it says this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then the court sat in judgment, and books were opened. It says, I saw, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is talking about at the judgment day that you and I will be at, God the Father receiving God the Son as the one who holds all authority over all peoples, and books are opened in judgment, and guess Who is doing the judging? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says here, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. Why should I follow Him? Why would I make such a tremendous sacrifice for Him? Well, because He has all authority in the universe. It's not a carpenter coming back. Because He's God, He possesses heavenly glory of God. How many people does the Bible say God shares his glory with? I will share my glory with. So what's Christ doing coming back with the heavenly glory of the Father? Well, he is God the Son. Some would say, well, no, he's not. No, he's not. He became the greatest man who ever lived, but he's not God. Okay, well, Jesus said, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Meaning he is eternally co-equal in God's presence of glory and honor and worship. That makes Jesus God the Son. Why would I follow him? 
What do you mean sit down in an electric chair? What do you mean put my head in a noose? What do you mean pick up a cross? Who does he think he is asking me of that? Uh, He's the eternal ruler of the universe who came into this world to die for you. The world, it says, was created by him and for him, and he sustains it with the word of his power. If Jesus, like, sneezed wrong and took his hand off the wheel of the universe, you would just dissipate. That's the person who we're dealing with here. Because he's the only way. Because he's returning as the glorious judge of all. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the standard of judgment for heaven and hell. It's his voice that permits you to go one way or the other and his voice alone. Check this out. This is a picture from a courtroom scene. And what you're looking at right now is the most important moment in your entire existence. See, this is the moment when the gavel falls and sentence is rendered on your soul. And there's only one of two places you're going to end up going. Either you're going to hear at that moment, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's happiness, or you're going to hear, I never knew you. Jesus will say to you, I never knew you. And then you'll go to hell forever. That's the most important moment in your existence. And Jesus is saying, he's the most important person in the most important moment of your entire existence. Why would I follow him? Why does he deserve my allegiance? Well, he's the only way to eternal life. He's returning as the glorious judge of all. And by the way, he says elsewhere in parallel passages that if you reject him and refuse to acknowledge him before people, meaning you're not his follower, he will refuse to acknowledge you before the Father. Your allegiance to him determines his allegiance to you. And here's the last point, because you will be rewarded. Because you will be rewarded. He says, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is therefore the arbiter. He's the one who uh, hands out blessings in the next life. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think the primary application of that is within a week, Jesus was going to lead three of his followers up on a mountain. And while they're standing there with him, it's called the Mountain of Transfiguration, Jesus just bursts into flames and becomes brighter than the sun. Light came out of his pores and he, they couldn't look at him. And then God the Father came down in his cloud of glory and spoke and said, this is my son whom I love. Follow him, listen to him. Jesus gave them a sneak peek at his glory and his kingdom and said, do you know who I am? And then he was gone. And he did that to reinforce the reality that heaven is coming. And we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And the trumpet's going to sound and the dead will be raised. And then judgment will be rendered. And you will be rewarded. But here's the problem. Many who are even here today have false assurance that you will go to heaven. And if you're not a true disciple of Christ, if you have not denied yourself, taken up your cross, and followed him, you have nothing waiting for you in the next life but judgment. And Jesus doesn't want you to have false assurance. He wants you to have reassurance that you are his. Sadly, many today, you've been told that you can rule your own lives, that you can indulge in sin, that you could befriend the world, that you can marginalize the person of Jesus, and that you could still have hope that heaven will be waiting for you. 
Listen, Jesus wants to strip you of that hope right now. Because if you're not a follower of him with a cross on your back, the crown off of your head, if you're not a follower of him, turning away from the world, you've got nothing waiting for you, nothing good. But he wants you to have eternal life, which is why he's calling you to be his follower today. He wants you to deny yourself. He wants you to take up your cross. He wants you to follow him here in this life and forever. My question for you is, have you gotten to that point where you've understood who Jesus is, what he did for you? You've surrendered your soul and asked him to be your Savior and Lord. Have you gotten to that point? If you're a follower of Christ, are you still putting conditions on Jesus' lordship? Still not allowing him to touch certain things in your life? You're still wrestling him for control in certain areas? Hey, he wants you all in, completely surrendered, totally trusting him. Are you willing to be persecuted? Are you willing to be put down? Are you willing to be made fun of? That's what discipleship is. Christ wants you to be true disciples of him. He doesn't want anything less. Anyone who wants to be half in, he's telling you, give it up right now. It's not worth it. But if you have a heart that's ready to receive this call to discipleship, hey, I want to give you a chance to either commit yourself to this life or to recommit yourself to this life. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Let's close our eyes and let's go to the Lord in prayer together based on what we've heard in his word. Jesus, you are so honest and you are so upfront and forthright with what discipleship will cost us. And the answer, what will it cost me? The answer is it will cost me everything. But you will give me everything in eternity. Lord, I trust that there are those in this room who are your followers and you're calling them to recommit themselves to you. They've been playing games. They've been wayward. They've been wobbly. They've been uncommitted. They've been tentative. But here you remind them of the cost of following you. The persecution that will come. The lack of freedom. What is waiting for us in the next world? Words can't even describe it. Lord, some are here this morning and they don't have a saving relationship with you. Something has been telling them that they're okay, that they're going to heaven, but you're telling them that's not true. Some are ready to believe you and in desperation to cry out to you. Lord, I just want to pray. And if they pray along with me in their hearts and mean what they're praying, I want you to give them assurance, Lord. They may want to pray this. Heavenly Father, I confess that I have lived a sinful and rebellious life before you. I've broken your law and broken your heart and deserve nothing. But I understand Jesus died on the cross for me. I understand he came into the world to save sinners like me. And so I trust you. Father, I pray that you would save me through Jesus. Wash me of my sins. Give me hope of heaven. Help me to know that I will pass through the judgment without condemnation. It's not because of my works, but it's because of your grace. Father, I pray that you would give those who are calling out to you for salvation reassurance that could only come from the Lord, the Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. 
Lord, help us to deny ourselves again, to take up our cross again, to follow you again. We pray this in Jesus' name.